The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. How many of you, when you watch a film, know the soundtrack? Like you know the songs. How many of you are like my weird friend Rob, who's uh, uh, Rod, who's one of our elders here? He not only knows the soundtrack for the songs, he knows like in the fourth scene when they're eating breakfast, he can hear the music and know what the song was in that scene for something like that. We're in this series called Soundtrack, looking at great songs that have to do with the theme, with the whole idea of Easter. And this song, it's odd that the Isaiah 53 is written as a song. It's not written as, as prose, like telling a story. It's written like with music behind it is the source for the song that we are looking at today. Uh, in your programs, there is, uh, there is the note sheet on there, and I've put the lyrics to the song that we're looking at. It's called Man of Sorrows, and it comes right here out of Isaiah 53, where, she, where Anne just read it for us. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. It talks about the idea he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, he, he did not open his mouth. It says there several times in the lyrics to Man of Sorrows. It talks about three big ideas that we're going to look at today. And there's way more than this. We, we could have done the whole thing and we would be here till about 1030 uh, this evening uh, but nobody wants to be here that long. But to really plumb the depths of that, I encourage you with this song that Isaiah put together. This song was forecasting, foreshadowing, prophesying a time when someone would come to save them. You know that Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem and before he's crucified and rises from death. And it's crazy how exact how much he had no idea at the time he's talking about somebody coming in 700 years. I'd encourage you on your own this week, take some time. Those of you that are watching with us and uh, online, get Isaiah 53 out and read it and meditate it, think on it, because there's so much that's just so deep and rich in this song. But the three big ideas we're going to look at, you'll see them there on your note sheet, is first of all, where it talks about that rugged cross. Uh, we're going to sing this song today at the conclusion of our time uh, together. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, is one of the lines there in the song. It also talks about, at the very beginning of, of, of the song, uh, that the sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. So we're going to talk about sin and the wrath and the judgment of God. And then finally... It says, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full, that it's done. The power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin has been paid. We're going to look here. As, as we look at that, one of the lines there in the song, it says, talks about the rugged cross. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. We, we in uh, 21st century spirituality, America, all that, we are, a lot of us have beautiful crosses. Some of you are aware, I see a beautiful cross on necklaces and big, massive stained glass windows in very, very traditional liturgical churches that are just beautiful and fantastic. Uh, the, 
Our Constitution has a provision in it that says that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. But the cross in the first century in Rome did not prohibit cruel and unusual punishment. It required it. The whole point of the cross was for it to be cruel and unusual. And it's, I get that what God has done here has redeemed the most despicable evil thing that human beings have come up with to torture and kill people was the cross. But if somebody were to time travel from the first century to this century and see crosses put up on scaffolding, necklaces, jewelry, with, they would look at us like we're crazy. The cross was, they, 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 it, it's, it would blow their mind. Back then, uh, in, in Roman times, Rome had perfected the art of slowly torturing someone to death. When a person was condemned to death, it was done not in private, not in a quiet place. If they were doing crucifixions still today and Rome was still the world empire, you know where they would do the crucifixions? At the Winchester on-ramps and off-ramps where the traffic stops to make sure everybody sees, don't mess with us. This is what happens to anybody who messes with us. Uh, a person who was going to be crucified was oftentimes beat beforehand. If you saw the film The Passion of the Christ and saw how people were whipped back then, it was not just leather straps and, and beaten. It was pieces of rock, jagged pottery embedded in the ends of the straps, and it would take it and you would whip a person strapped to the whipping post, and it would wrap around that body latch into the flesh and then they would pull it off. Oftentimes people died just from the flogging and Jesus was flogged and beaten. Uh, crucifixions happened in public places. A person who was crucified would usually carry the cross piece out to the crucifixion site in a very public way. The person who was being crucified is naked. Now all of the crucifixion paintings you've ever seen Never has Jesus naked because when they first started doing crucifixion paintings was not for two or three hundred years after Jesus had, uh, had, had died when, they, uh, when crucifixion had largely gone out of being done publicly anymore so anybody who had seen one. So in, in trying to be gentle and deferential and show some respect to the Son of God, they put, they put a, cloth, a cloth on him, a robe on him to, to cover him up. But Jesus would have been stripped naked in full view of everybody on the play on the crucifixion site people when they were crucified sometimes they were roped to the cross usually they they would put nail spikes through their wrists the, the point of crucifixion was to do this slowly so that a man on the cross would take days to die they would put spikes in the wrists. They would also put spikes through their feet. They would bend their knees slightly. This will be important in a second, but they would bend their knees slightly. In some cases, they have found this as they've done excavation over in ancient places where people have thought forever they would, they've crossed the feet over each other like this and nailed them to the cross. They've also discovered they actually sometimes put their, took their feet and put them on both sides of the cross and nailed it through the Achilles tendon to fasten that person to the 
cross. They'd be there for days. The, the smell and the heat and the flies and the birds of prey that would come around and begin to peck away and eat away at this person, the smell of human waste. If a person, a person is up there, people going by there would grab their garbage, grab, spit on them, throw things at them, make fun of them there on the cross. A person who died on the cross did not die from shock or from blood loss. They died of asphyxiation because as you're hanging on a cross, remember I told you they, they bent their knees? As you're hanging there, after a while you start with the weight of your body hanging there, you, the pressure here in your lungs, you can't breathe. And so your body would, in its desperate desire for breath, would convulse up and you would push up on the nail-pierced feet and through your hands and they would, and then collapse back down again. This would go on for days like this. This is why uh, you'll see if you um, read your own Bibles, it says that they were trying to hasten the criminal's death. The three people there were being crucified. They went to break their legs. The reason they broke their legs was it would stop them from being able to breathe any longer, and they would eventually uh, uh, die uh, that way. When they got to Jesus, he was already dead. Um, the cross, the worst part, though, of what happened to Jesus on the cross was not the crucifixion. It was not the crucifixion. Um, Rome crucified hundreds, thousands of people all the time. All kinds of people have been crucified in pretty much the same way that Jesus had been. Usually they were guilty, terrible people, but oftentimes people that were innocent had done nothing wrong, but Rome just wanted to make sure they made a statement about this, oftentimes would cruelly torture people to death, hanging them on a cross. Uh, you might want to write this down. There's not going to be a lot of fill in the blanks here today, those of you that love that. There are going to be some things you might want to write down, but this is one of them, that the cross is the appeasement of God's wrath and the revelation of God's love. In the verses we just read, they're going to come up here on the screen again. In, in verse 5, in verse 5 it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. Pierced, the idea of nails and spikes, and Isaiah has no idea what he even means by that. Pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Look down at verse 6. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. In verse 8, it says, he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. And then one of the craziest verses in here, all this terrible suffering, this suffering servant who's innocent, who's done nothing wrong, it says here in verse 10, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. In the lyrics of that song, you'll see it there. It says, the sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. And we talk about sin in Western civilization, Western culture anymore. Sin is something like, eh, there are people that are sinners, people who've done some bad stuff, but come on, Steve. We're all snowflakes, unicorns, Skittles. We're just wonderful people. We need to be true to our selves. And we will think, okay, 
I know I'm not perfect, but come on, I'm not that bad. And when we say that, what we are doing is we are comparing ourselves with some other moron we know who's just a disaster and terrible. Uh, when you compare yourself with somebody else, you can always find somebody who's way worse than you are. You can look around this room today and there are people sitting in here. You go, okay, the sin of man and wrath of God, that dude right there, that lady right there, they're, in, they're, they're at church on a Saturday. And you can look at some of them and know that. Certainly people at your work, certainly people, well, I'll be careful here what I say, but people that you know out there, because they're sinners. They've done the really, really bad stuff. And probably, though, the most offensive sin we ever commit is when we look at ourselves and go, I'm not that bad. You know, who you're probably the worst. Because what that means is when we compare ourselves to the ultimately pure, holy, righteous, awesome, loving God, Romans 3.23, Paul's going to tell us we all fall short. And it's not like, oh, we all fall short and we missed it by that much. It's like, dude, you were throwing uh, an axe, axe throwing thing at the target and it landed behind you. you. You missed completely. We fall short. We don't fall short of the glory of mankind. If you want to talk about the glory of mankind, certainly. Let's live up to our potential, be true to ourselves and all of that crazy stuff. The scripture is going to make it clear that um, that we're not just basically good people that have a little bit of like brokenness in us. Let me use some analogies here. Anybody have your car break down on the side of the road? Call AAA, right? Call AAA or a mechanic, somebody come out there. Can you imagine you get out there, AAA gets out there, they take pop, pop the hood, sir, ma'am, whatever, and they get in there and they look at your car and go, where's the engine? Where's the transmission? Like there's just nothing there. That's who you are before God. You are powerless before God to do anything to make yourself right with God. There's nothing there. The problem for you and me is that by our very nature, we will try to be religious, good people and think, maybe I can, maybe I can make myself right with God on my own. If I just, religion says, just try harder. And again, you've been told, this is the water you're swimming in right now, is that you're a good person, just do a little bit more, and then God will be okay with you. And the Bible is going to make it very, very clear that you have a problem. You have a debt that is impossible to pay when it comes to your sin and the wrath and the judgment of God. And you're not just indebted to God, you are spiritually dead. Look, flip over, keep something here in Isaiah. Go to the right in your Bibles. Go to the book of Ephesians. Um, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Then there's books of Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. It, it, imagine now this is the self-esteem training that you got when you were a child that your kids would get at school. 
This is what we're going to tell you is the truth about who you really are as a human being. Not the jacked up, messed up people who never go to church and the outsiders. Look at it. Once you were, what's that next word there? Dead. Not broken. Not struggling. Not sick in your sins. You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. Like everybody does this. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. What he's telling us is we're dead in our sins, and every single one of us are following a system designed by Satan to mess you up. So we're all Satan followers. And that's, that's how you're born into the world. That's not because you did some bad things and got all jacked up and messed up in your 15, when you're 15, 20, 30. That was... Man, you popped out of the womb like this. And it just gets worse. You're so glad you came to church this weekend. Do you hear about what a jacked up mess you are? It's going to be worse. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. This is why when people say, be true to yourself, I go, don't tell people to be true to themselves. They're a disaster. Wretched, black-hearted sinners should not be true to themselves. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. That's the word there is God's wrath, just like everyone else. He says, it's not because you did anything. It was just wired into you from the beginning because of the curse of sin that's in our lives. We were dead in our sin, following a system designed by Satan. We were rebels against God, and we are by our very nature, not by our deeds, the very nature of who we are, subject to God's wrath and anger. And again, I get it. We don't like the idea of God's wrath and anger. Um, you know, our churches started to really grow again and gain traction and all that. So, like, the consultant people would say, you don't do this message right now. No, not right now. You finally got people coming back to church, finally, after two years of the crazy COVID stuff. It's some quotes I got for you. The 21st century love of God is welcomed into our world, and the holiness of God is shoved over in the closet. Here's a great one I found this week. It says, we've so elevated the love of God over the wrath of God that we've attempted to air condition hell. And our problem here, this is from a, th- a theologian, uh, Ronald Niebuhr, it says it this way, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. And when it comes to this whole idea of God's anger and wrath and judgment against sin, here's what a guy wrote. I couldn't put it any better than this. He says, the wrath of God is the only possible reaction a completely perfect God can have against any sin. They cannot coexist together. Now, I want to be careful here because some of you, like me, tightly wound religious types, like me, Hear a message like this and go, it's about dang time. We're talking about the wrath of God and the judgment of God against sinners. If you're thinking that, you don't understand who, who God is. And who God, man, God is coming for everybody. And the pride and arrogance to think that you're better than everybody else and everybody else deserves God's wrath, just, shh. This is not like amazing, fantastic, beautiful, wow, this is tough stuff. Now, when we talk about God's wrath and God's judgment against sin, we have to deconstruct a couple ideas because some of you grew up in abusive families with abusive fathers. 
It's not what we're talking about here. This is not an impulsive God who just gets ticked off at us and just <laughs> going to be abusive to us. It's the stern reaction of God against evil. It's not God throwing a temper tantrum. It's God's angry reaction to sin and evil, and it's real and it's deadly. And Exodus chapter 4, 14, verses 6 and 7 says it this way, though, when it comes to God's anger, it says, our God is slow to anger, abounding in love. His first impulse is just love, love. He's not just, you set me off and I'm killing y'all, all y'all, and sending y'all to hell. He's not doing that. But there is very real reaction of a holy, amazing, beautiful, awesome, loving God against sin. There's some verses here I want you to see. You may want to turn to these if you can find it, table of contents to find it because it's tricky to find. It's a little book called Nahum. Um, if you get to the book of Matthew, you've gone too far. Go backwards. <laughs> the book of, of Nahum. Uh, I could have put, I could have filled up our note sheet today with all the verses in the Bible and the accounts where it talks about God's anger and God's wrath. I didn't do that. Google them if you want to see more of this for yourself. Don't just take my word for this. But the, here's Nahum. He's a prophet. He says he lived in a, in a sound called Elkosh. I have no idea where that is. But he, here's what he says. The Lord... The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Look down at verse 6. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? And he's not looking for people to go, oh, I think I could. I've been a pretty good person. No, no. I'm not looking for answers on this. His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Bible makes it very, very clear that the God, the one true God, not the God that we have created in our culture, that God is your homeboy, and God's your best friend, and God's your life coach. He'll do all those things for you, but this is a God who has a settled, angry and, and the word anger doesn't even do it. I love I, the, the, the word here is like the of wrath. Because wrath's a little more intense than anger, right? And have you ever experienced like the anger of your dad or mom and then their wrath and know the difference? Oh, yeah. Like crazy, we know the difference on that. And Tim Keller, a famous pastor uh, back in New York, says it this way. A God of less wrath than the God of the Bible is necessarily a God of less love. His anger is a product of his love. Justin, who does student ministries here and directs and oversees our middle school, high school kids, we were talking about it this week with our team. And he says, really, if you want a God of love and there's no power, there's no reaction against evil, is that a God really worth serving? A God who's just going to pat us on the head and go, oh, that's okay, just do what you want. You didn't mean it. You said you're sorry. Moms, Dads, think about this with your kids. To know that how much you love your children. Get in your mind now your children. Now, if you have adult children, this is a little harder to do because your adult children can kind of handle themselves in the world. Think about your younger children or your grandchildren right now.
there is a, uh, she used to be a little girl. She's been involved in our lives now for, since she was four years old. Her name is Faith. She got baptized here a couple weeks ago. Love that kid with all my heart and soul. She's not a little girl anymore, but I'm telling you right now, if one of you were to do something to go after her and hurt her, you would see the wrath of Steve. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's the whole idea. Like somebody really were to go do something really horrible, awful, I, I, the wrath of Steve, you look at me and go, well, what could you do? You know what I would do? I'd call Liam Neeson. Remember the movie Taken? Remember that line in the movie Taken? It's going to be up here on the screen for you. His daughter has been kidnapped, and he has no idea what's going on, and they call him, and this is the line on the phone with, her, with them. I, don't, I can't even do his accent to do it right, but just go, hear Liam Neeson's voice in your head. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. What I do have are a particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. See, at the end of the day, you want a God who can handle himself, who's going to take care ultimately of sin and evil. Now, what I don't want is I don't want to think that I'm really in that whole in humanity that God's angry with because of my sin my rebellion against him. But God says it's for all of you. It's for you unrighteous fools that have done a bunch of terrible, evil things, and it's for you religious people over here that think you're not so bad because you're comparing yourself with somebody else and not with a holy and righteous, awesome, amazing God. I will submit to you that the love of God without the wrath of God just makes God your imaginary friend. He's not real, but he might make you feel better. We're not going to do that here. We're going to go, look, man, when God talks about stuff, we're not going to sugarcoat that stuff or take the edges off of any of that. And so it, it tells us that the sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. It talks about it several times in Isaiah 53, where he talks about the, the different ways that he was pierced for our rebellion, he was crushed for our sin. And Isaiah, at the time he wrote this, 700 years before Jesus, would have no idea. Crucifixion really wasn't even that widely used at that point. Matthew, when Matthew records for us his, his account of Jesus being crucified on the cross, one of the things he tells us that Jesus said on the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe, based on the narrative of the Scripture and looking at a lot more people that are much smarter, who've investigated what does it mean that he absorbed the wrath of God, that it was at that moment when God the Father in heaven, his good plan was to crush his son and pour out on his son the wrath, the holy wrath of God against sin on someone who was completely innocent. And because he was a human being, he could do that in my place for my sin because I'm human. And because he's also fully God, he can do that infinitely for the sins of the world to the depths of anything we can ever figure out. I don't know, hmm. I'm not sure about this. So this isn't come out of the scripture. This is Steve standing over here going, I don't know about this in particular, but I just want to share this with you, some thoughts I have 
on this idea of hell. Because hell in the scriptures is described as a place of outer darkness, of, of the wrath and the judgment of God for eternity. It talks about the idea of a, a lake of fire. It talks about a, being a bottomless pit is the fullest expression of the wrath and judgment of God against sin. And I'm not sure. I've read a lot of different people who think, well, those aren't really actual. It's not, an, hell isn't actually fire. It isn't actually darkness. It isn't actually bottomless. But those are analogies to help us give some idea of what hell's going to be like. And see, we will hear that and think, thank God hell's not going to be that bad. I'm telling you, it's far worse than a lake of fire and far worse than a bottomless pit and far worse than outer darkness. Those are, if, even if those are analogies for what judgment of God, and I think what happens to Jesus on the cross is that Jesus, as the infinite God in the flesh, human being, experiences utter abandonment, the forsakenness of God. And not one of you, not one human being who's ever lived has ever experienced the idea of a world, an environment, completely absent the presence of God. Even if you've been a jacked up mess and made a mess out of your life and done terrible, evil, nasty things, there's still the common grace of God that God says, I give you, I give you nature and the beauty of nature and I put a conscience in your heart and soul. And we have no ability to fathom what it would be like to have every sign of God gone from our existence. And it's just done. And Jesus, when he's on the cross, experiences absolute world experience, completely absent of God. And he screams out, why have you forsaken me? A very famous pastor whose name is John Piper. I'm going to put the quote on the screen. Some of you may not get, pick, may get your cameras out and take pictures of this. It's a beautiful way to say this. It says this. The brilliance of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the holiness and justice of God. I'm going to read it again. The brilliance of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the holiness and the justice of God. Because some people think, well, he's God. Can't he just kind of go, oh, that's no big deal, whatever, like you do with your kids sometimes, you parents that are enabling bad behavior in your children for the rest of their lives? Different thing for a different time. But he's infinite God. Can't God just do what he wants? And I think there's something in the character of God that says, look, there's a price and a penalty. There's judgment and wrath. This has to go. Somebody has to pay this price. Pay this penalty. Because here's the deal. Why God doesn't just say, oh, I forgive you and just kind of sweep it under the rug. You know what that would do with our sin? Leave it under the rug. You know what we're going to keep doing? Sinning. Something had to be dealt with finally and fully, and that's exactly what Jesus does in the cross and in the resurrection, is that sin is finally and fully handled and dealt with. And that's why there's the, you'll see the lyrics of your, in, on the, uh, the song, uh, Man of Sorrows. It says, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full. Jesus screams out, the last thing he screams out on the cross is, it is finished. And the word he uses there is the Greek word tetelestai. Back in that culture, 
they would have recognized that word as whenever you were going to close a deal of any kind of thing, you would get a stamp and it would be to telestai. The deal has been closed, it's done, whatever, and it's finished and it's over. And Jesus just said, the debt that humanity owes to the God of the universe has been paid in full. The penalty on the cross, the penalty of my sin has been forever taken care of. But there's a problem now. Because some of you go, okay, the penalty is taken care of, and I want to be a Christian, but how come I keep jacking things up and making a mess out of things? That's because we don't recognize, I don't think, the fact that Jesus didn't just come to deal with the penalty of sin. He came to break the power of sin. And that's why it says in there, see the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. That Jesus came out of that grave, and it tells us, in Romans chapter 6, flip over there. In Romans chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans 6, he, he talks about this. He, he says here, since we have been united with him. This is an important theological concept, the idea that when you become a Christian, you are now in some way that I can't completely grasp or comprehend metaphysically, spiritually, you are united with Christ in a way that people who aren't Christians yet don't experience. You've been united with Christ. Here's what it means. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. That means before you become a Christian, you know what you're doing? Just do whatever comes natural to you. Sin and evil. He says that, that power has been broken now. You're no longer just a slave to sin. You no longer, you, if you're a Christian, it's no longer, well, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can. You've been given the Spirit of God. The, the resurrection means he has broken. He has not only just paid the penalty of your sin, he's broken the power to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. It says, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. It means we're no longer a slave to sin. Uh, and it's also going to tell us over in Colossians. You flip to the right in your Bibles a little bit. You're here in Romans. Go to Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 13 says it this way. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. You had a nature inside of you that made you dead, bankrupt, under the wrath and judgment of God. Then God made you alive. Didn't just forgive your sin and leave you there in the grave going, well, at least, you know, you don't have to go to hell anymore. You know, he's made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against it against us, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And so when Jesus comes out of that grave, he, he breaks the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we're no longer dead in our sin. He says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He says, I come to give you life and life to the full. And look at me for a second. 
Too many of us have thought, well, that life to the full means when I die someday, I get eternal life and to go, get to go to be with God forever someday in heaven. That is absolutely true. But that life to the full means right here, right now. As a human being on planet Earth, the power of sin has been broken. Now, what that means for you and me, you go, how come I struggle with sin? Well, because you've been given a new heart, but you know what you don't have yet, brand new yet, is your mind's all jacked up. That's why Paul's going to tell us, hey, if you want to live this life, you have to have your mind renewed. Get your perspective renewed. Renew it over and over and over again. And so I wonder today, for some of us, maybe it's time to say yes to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you thought, well, I've been a fan of God, and I kind of thought, well, if I'm just a good person and do some good things, come to church with my kids and do some good things, that'll square the deal with me and God. You know, you can't do that. What faith says is this. Jesus, all you have to do is believe that what happened 2,000 years ago on that cross, when I said it's finished and done, it means I canceled the penalty for your sin. I paid it in full. You don't have to pay anything in full anymore. You don't have to do anymore. I wonder if there's somebody here today. I'm not going to make you stand up or raise your hand, but it's time for you to get right with God. It's time for you to quit being religious. It's quite time for you to quit messing around with stuff and just say, I believe. And I, you don't have to get everything yet, but all you have to get is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the wrath and judgment of God for your sin so that you don't have to. That's why it's called the gospel, why it's called the good news, that Jesus lived and died in our place for our sins, and he rose from power, rose from the dead with real power for new life. And my other question for us today How many of us need to hear the voice of God because we're united with Christ? We sing a song here. I'm not sure when we've done it recently, but it just comes to mind right now. It says, he called my name, and I came out of the grave. Some of you have been forgiven of your sin, and he called your name, and you're still sitting in the stinking grave. Because I have new life for you. I want to break the power of that, that sin, that stuff that's making a mess. I don't, you, are, you are not just a sinner saved by grace. Mm -mm. that's part of who you are, but you've been given power now to live a transformed life. Our band's going to come up right now. And we're going to sing some songs. One of the songs we're going to sing is that, this song that we, I just told you about, the, uh, the Man of Sorrows. Uh, if you're here today with questions about any of this, you're going, okay, it's time for me to square the deal with Christ and, and escape the wrath and judgment of God on the connection card that, we told, that they told you about a few minutes ago. Jot me a note about that. Our prayer team must be at the back of the house. I'd encourage you to go to the back of the house. If you have questions about this, you just want to close the deal with, with Jesus today, go, like, I need to have my sins forgiven. Whatever that guy was talking about, I want that. They'll talk to you about that and pray with you and help you step over that line of faith and surrender your life to Christ today. Some of you have never been baptized as a Christian. This is what it means that <laughs> it says that we were buried with him in his death and then raised to new life. That's the symbol of baptism, of going public with our faith. If you've never been baptized as a Christian, I want to tell you, do that as a way to say yes to everything God has for you. I don't know what else God wants to say to you today, but here's the fantastic good news of the gospel. Is it on that rugged cross, my sin and your sin and the wrath of God was settled there 2,000 years ago. 
It's been on Jesus laid. I don't have to take it anymore. The guilt and the shame that gets spoken over my life, it's done. It's finished. The penalty has been paid and the power has been broken. Come to tables of communion today in the four corners of the room where there's bread and juice there that symbolizes the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the moment where he takes the sin and the judgment of God on himself. And come and celebrate that today for those of you that are already followers of Christ. So Jesus, today, we can't fathom it. The wrath and the judgment that I deserved for rebelling against you, you took on yourself. And so today, God, we celebrate, we sing, we partake, and we pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.